0: My name's Helen. It's really great to see you at our first lunchtime seminar, which are really uh, tackling some really great and vital uh, ministries and subjects and uh, that are really valid for our, all of our lives and our front lines, our ministries, our family lives. And uh, we pray that our time together will be really beneficial for you uh, today speaker today really brings quite a wealth of experience to the table having served I think in Zimbabwe and Seychelles and Guernsey and uh, from someone who's stuck in landlocked West Bromwich uh, I have been Boston personally for a seaside parish so I'm quite envious of, uh, of where you've been and where you live um, Eric but uh, I think you'll, you'll realise that having read his little uh, write-up that he... Um, has had quite a few personal battles, uh, long-term serious health issues, and uh, his pastoral ministry to those who grieve will, I'm sure, uh, prove an invaluable uh, backdrop to what he brings to us over the next 50 minutes. Thank you, Helen.
1: Thank you. And it's great to see you. I know you had a choice today. There are several channels, several airlines serving this route. (laughs) And you chose to fly with me, so thanks very much. That's really great. It's important that we're sharing together on the subject of helping people cope with pain, loss and grief. When I was first asked to share the seminar, I thought to myself, I don't feel really fully qualified, not for all three. Um, I I respect Malcolm Duncan's great book, Good Grief, which is on our book table here at the end. Tremendous work, seminal work, which I've given out to several folk and I've really drawn from myself uh, as being, you know, the to-go-to book about grief. And although, like all of you here, I'm sure I've lost folk and I've walked that valley And then I began to reflect over my own experiences, which I'll talk a bit more about, obviously in introducing the subject, and i talk very much more about in my latest book, Through the Storms, which is available at the end. Um, I realized that actually grief touches us, not just through the loss of loved ones who pass on, but through the loss of all kinds of things, through the loss of our strength, the loss of our ministries, the loss of people who have fallen away from the faith the loss of all kinds of things we had hoped for like the people walking to Emmaus we had hoped and Jesus himself drew near and helped them to understand that even though they were disappointed that God was at work in their grief their loss and so so I come to you you know someone once said to Rick Warren recently how long does it take you to prepare a sermon and he answered 60 years and I prepared this seminar over 22 years of the most painful condition known to humanity. Uh, If you're in medicine, if you're involved in medical care at all, you'll know that acute pancreatitis is one of those most painful conditions. The pancreas sits in the middle of the body um, so that it's right there, uh, like the shape of an ox tongue, and um, all the nerves that serve your brain with pain go north and south through that organ or near it. And the major blood vessels all go near it. When it gets blocked or malfunctions, it's the the enzymes, that it does two things. It produces enzymes which dissolve meat, and it produces insulin that controls your glucose, your sugar. And uh, when the enzymes that eat meat start to escape from the pancreas in the wrong way, which is what happens when it gets sick, then it eats through those nerves and it eats through the blood vessels. So I suffered with acute hemorrhaging pancreatitis, Um, I also suffered with acute necrotizing pancreatitis which is when the pancreas turns to gangrene and it is one of the most painful conditions known to man. I had over a hundred admissions to teaching hospitals in the UK, Uh, I was uh, a pastor, I was at the time I first got ill, I was leading the city temple church in Cardiff which was a tremendous sort of flagship congregation. And God was really blessing us. It was the mid-90s. We, we were experiencing the Toronto blessing. The Holy Spirit was breathing on the church. We were having healings and salvation miracles. I was leading that church. People were coming from miles to be prayed for. And then I became ill. And I just got sicker and sicker and sicker. More and more sick, to be more grammatically correct. And um, people were praying for me. And I remember one of the elders said to my wife, How's Eric? And she said, He's really poorly And he said to her, well, he can't be, we're praying for him. (laughs) And she said, well, don't give up, please. And I learnt a lot of lessons as the leader of a flagship Pentecostal church and ministry who became chronically ill, acutely and then chronically ill. Acute because when it's acute, it's pointed, it's sharp, it's at that moment. Chronic means it's long term. So I became chronically ill with chronic pancreatitis with recurring acute incidents. Requiring me to be, uh, uh, after a while I had to leave Cardiff because I was so sick. So I went back to Guernsey to try and recover. And Guernsey is where we came from, my wife Diane and I. We were both born and brought up in Guernsey. It's from there that we set out in ministry and uh, served in, uh, went to Eland Bible College and served in churches in the UK and uh, back in the islands and then overseas as missionaries in Seychelles in the Indian Ocean, a thousand miles from anywhere, fabulous assignment. Um, uh, And then we we moved into Zimbabwe, really loved being in Zimbabwe for the Elam International Missions, serving in and around the eastern part of the country where Elam has its bases and churches. Uh, At that time it spread much more nationally now. And then came back to the uk to take up the role of senior pastor at the city temple cardiff and it was from there then that i became so ill and you know there are many mysteries out there we've just been through two years of the most appalling uh, pandemic we're still you know it's it's still an issue for us so many hundreds and thousands of people have died many of our churches have been impacted by this i attended a leadership conference in birmingham in march 2020 And one of the major speakers had died within two or three weeks. Uh, A pastor who was on the course with me, we had coffee together. He was dead within a month with COVID. Um, Our churches have been impacted, our ministers have been impacted, and uh, we are still trying to not pick up the pieces, but we're trying to understand what God is saying to us about our role in caring for people who have been through the most appalling stuff. And um, so what I want to do is just share a little bit about some of the experiences I've learned because, you know, after 50 years in ministry, and during that period, my wife Diane um, went through 13 years of crippling anxiety and depression, so I had to kind of lead a church, a Pentecostal church, while my wife was desperately unwell with mental illness, Um, And we had a a small child and a major building project all at the same time. And I learned a lot of lessons there about helping people through stuff. And I thought I'd done helping people through stuff and got the badge um, until I went overseas and and saw, you know, real suffering in in the African church and, and in the rural congregations that we served and so on. Um, And then, you know, entered into my own experience over 22 years of appalling pain with over 100 admissions to hospital, long periods in intensive care, several near-death encounters, 30 operations, 32 operations. Uh, the last one of which, well, I know I've had one since, but the major one was five years ago in Newcastle at the International Transplant Centre, where they took away my pancreas and my spleen and my gallbladder and all my bile ducts, hallelujah, and I've never been so well. Um, uh, You know, we used to sing years ago, have you any room for Jesus? Well, I have. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, yeah, I have to take pills to replace what the pancreas would do, but who cares? I'm well. Uh, And all that pain has gone. And, you know, we Pentecostals get all uptight about taking pills. And we get all shameful and worried. I talk about that in the book because I was on morphine for 22 years. And I was taking a 1,000 milligrams of morphine equivalent per day. And it was not even touching the pain. I used to take fentanyl by patch, by lollipop, when it was still available as a lollipop, by injection. I was, one Easter, just a short. Time ago, I was in the intensive care unit in Guernsey on a, um, a cocktail of fentanyl, a, 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 um, a drug called ketamine, which was a horse tranquilizer, being pumped directly into my veins for three weeks. And, you know, the kind of antibiotics that would clean your toilet just straight into my veins. And for, for those three weeks, my mind was absolutely blown. And one of the issues I've discovered is that I, I went through periods of deep paranoia when I was involved in intensive care, a thing called ICU psychosis. And uh, I talk about that in the book because the after effects of that have been quite difficult to deal with, especially because I've continued as a pastor, preaching when I could, ministering and serving churches, and, and dealing with all this stuff. And uh, so I've kind of seen the good and the not so good of support, okay? Uh, and, and I have to say, I don't think we Pentecostals are very good at supporting people through chronic conditions. I think we're, we can be quite good with acute stuff that happens and passes. We are not so good with the chronic stuff that simply doesn't go away. And sometimes, um, because of the public statements we make uh, and the prayers that people pray in public... And we should think very carefully when we pray in public because we are making statements that people will listen to and perhaps interpret wrongly sometimes. Okay, that's not to stop you doing it, but think about it. Um, And I write about some of that in this little book called Storm Force because I deal here with the issue of some of the Pentecostal theology that actually makes it very hard for disabled people to be part of our churches. Um, Because when we say that Jesus saves and heals through the atonement in the same style, and somebody is not healed after 20 years, they may ask themselves, am I saved? If it's all the same, right? So think about that. And, and the book was written, Stormforce was written to help you to think about it and just be a little more wary and careful for people who are going through stuff and attending the church, okay? Now that we're back together again, we love the fellowship, we're thrilled to be together. We need to be aware that people are sitting there with all kinds of stories and some of them will not be as, um, perhaps, as comfortable to tell, as, as some of the wonderful testimonies we hear. And we thank God for all the great things he's doing among us and the healings and the miracles. But sometimes it's not like that. And, um, you know, I, 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 there's a quote from... Oh, let me just move the, the slides forward. We're talking here about the missional opportunities of caring for people. There are missional opportunities in saying we care and proving it long-term by standing with people when things don't, clear up quickly but there's also moral obligations we're called by christ to care and to stand with people and i'm going to help you to understand how we could do that a bit more effectively because i felt so lonely and my wife felt so lonely and lost in our long-term condition 22 years we thought our doorbell had rusted over um, because we didn't fit the pattern spirit-filled pentecostal pastors on morphine um, and, and, you know, he's, he's depending on, on drugs and, and hospitalizations and so on. I was once in, in one of the London hospitals, University College London Hospital, and a lovely nurse was coming to administer morphine for pain relief. And she said, I see you're a reverend. I said, yes, I am. She said, what sort of church? I said, Pentecostal. Wonderful. She said, I go to Kensington Temple. I'll ask my pastor to pray for you. I didn't tell her, but Colin had been in and prayed with me. <laughs> and uh, I love him and, and appreciate him as a dear brother in the Lord. And, um, but, you know, I felt such shame that I, as a Pentecostal pastor, was receiving morphine that day. I don't know if you can understand that, but I felt absolutely ashamed as if I'd sinned some sort of moral sin and been found out because I was needing morphine to control my pain. Isn't that odd? And yet, you know, we we are kind of... And and it took a a godly Baptist chaplain, I talk about this in the book, to come along and help me because I was so embarrassed to be there. I remember saying to... to, um, when I was in the ICU in Guernsey, in Guernsey everybody knows everybody. Hi Martin, I know him because he's from Guernsey. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I remember saying to one of the, the nurses who I recognised had a sister in one of the Elam churches. And I said to her, please don't tell your sister I'm here. Don't tell anyone I'm here. I didn't realise the churches were holding fasting and prayer for me. They all knew I was in the ICU. But I was so embarrassed that I as a Christian leader was ill long-term, and was so seriously ill. We've got to get past this. We've got to get over ourselves, folks. Um, and, and, particu- and this Baptist chaplain helped me in London because I said to her, I am so embarrassed about my need of drugs. And she said to me, Eric, if, if you were diabetic, I wasn't at that stage, you, you would need insulin. You know, people with bad eyes need glasses. Um, listen, you give thanks for your food... <laughs> When you receive it why don't you give thanks for these things that god has placed in creation and actually bring actually bring relief and blessing to people like you in need so i learned to say grace before i had my morphine <laughs> of course it can be abused of course there's addicts who you know should never have done what they did with it um and opiates etc but you know i, I as i say a thousand milligrams of morphine equivalent per day and it, I was not having any trips. I, as soon as I was free of the pain after surgery, I came off it. And no worries, mate, it was gone after 20 years. Because when you take it for pain, not for other things, um, it does its job and, and, you know, you can move on. But just coming back to support in Pentecostal churches for people who are in long-term pain, grief or loss, I, I've come to realise that actually we've got to... We've got to come to an end of relying on other people's support. Much as I'm trying to say to you, we need to give more support, I want to say, if you're struggling, you, there comes a point where you have to say to yourself, um, I, you know, actually, people are people, and they move on, and they forget, but God has said, I will never forget you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And, and John Ortberg says in one of his books, no one is safe for a community If they have not first been disillusioned, if they have not died to their illusions about a community of perfect people, and been awakened through that disappointment to their call to love the actual people that God places around them. Welcome to your local Elam church. You can forget it if you think it's a community of perfect people. It certainly is not. And so over the years, and and that's why you're welcome there, by the way, (laughs) Um, uh, over the years then, you know, I came to, I received different kinds of love and prayers, and uh, I learned a lot through it. Let's just think about pain, yeah, sorry, From, from the scriptures, of course, Paul tells us that we're to share each other's burdens and troubles and so obey the Lord's command. What command is that? Well, Jesus said to his disciples, now I'm giving you a new command. Love one another, just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is how all men will know that you are my disciples, because you have such love one for another. So pain, loss, and grief comes in many shapes and sizes. Very quickly, because our time is short, but there's all kinds of stuff going on at the moment, isn't there? My goodness, with the pandemic, a war in Europe, Um, We're getting, maybe some of you are getting refugees from Ukraine coming into your town, into your churches, opportunities there to love and serve them, bereavement, job loss, uh, financial poverty, retirement, chronic ill health, all these things can cause pain, loss and grief, childlessness, miscarriages and child death, my goodness, what depths of grief. Unwanted singleness, I believe, can cause ongoing grief and we should not, neglect or overlook the singles in our congregations, personal or moral failure, rejection by other Christians, loss of ministry, loss of strength and personal faculties. I became like a child. I had led a church of hundreds, um, served as a missionary dashing round Zimbabwe with all the drought relief in the back of my truck, saving villages, you know, uh, leading leaders, teaching leaders, overseeing a denomination in that land, and then Here I am in in hospital beds being cleaned by nurses like a baby. All my weight fell away. I had to relearn how to walk. They wouldn't let me look in a mirror. When I came out of ICU the first time after three or four weeks, they wouldn't let me look in a mirror. And I'm glad they didn't. When I did finally catch a glimpse of myself in a mirror, I was shocked I looked like somebody out of Belsen. And, you know, there's all kinds of loss and grief that can come to us. And people losing strength and personal faculties, maybe as the years go by. Loss of respect, loss of position, loss of trust in previously respected leaders and institutions. Think of the big names that have fallen in the last couple of years. And and our people are feeling this. And uh, disappointment at seemingly unanswered prayer then decline in church attendance, things were going so well, and then came the pandemic, and now look at it, and you're thinking, my goodness, and um, lack of commitment from volunteers, then mental health issues and suicides. Suicide's an absolute plague. Um, A good friend of mine, Professor David Enoch from Cardiff, uh, written a wonderful book just recently about his own life uh, of of teaching in psychiatry and and being a a clinical psychologist, psychiatrist, and... um, and, and preacher in Wales, and David said to me during the, during the um, pandemic, he said, we are facing a tsunami of mental illness at the end of this pandemic, and I really believe it's happening, and people are struggling to the extent where suicide is a real issue in, in our community, in Guernsey, who would have thought? Listen, when I first went to that perfect little island in the 1980s, before I got ill, I was sent there to lead a church in the 1980s, um, I was walking on the beach one morning on the east coast of the island with the sun coming up. It was like paradise. And I came across the body of a young woman dead in the surf. And I went and called the police. and waited for a policeman to come on his motorbike. And it turned out that that young lady was the heiress to a fortune. Had moved to Guernsey where her uh, tax issues were perhaps a bit easier. But that young lady took her own life in the surf because she was so unhappy in perfection in paradise and there's an awful lot of suicide and and the potential of that in our churches we need to be aware of it so oh, I just put et cetera et cetera there's all kinds of pain that people are going through at this time and so I want to just tell you today about the power of helping hands Um, I don't know if any of you have seen on BBC 2 the documentary series Saving Lives at Sea uh, which is all about the Royal National Life, uh, Lifeboat Institution. Well, there's one amazing entree to that, where they, they show a video at the beginning. And, and you see, looking at, out of a camera that's on the, on the tunic of a lifeboatman, you see somebody actually about to drown. The, the, the cameraman's looking over the gunnel of the boat, and all you see is a hand sticking out of the sea. And the lifeboatman made the comment, I've seen people drown in front of me and we're watching it happen on screen. And then he reaches out his hand and he takes the hand of the person under the water and he yells at them, you're all right, we've got you, and pulls them up. And you see this person's face burst out of the water, spluttering and coughing, and they're hauled up onto the boat. And I think as churches, we need to be able to say to people, you're all right, we've got you. We've got to be able to go to people who are drowning in all this stuff. and and literally haul them out Uh, in the ukraine crisis it's so moving to see the response on the borders of poland and hungary on one side of the border in ukraine death and destruction on the other side people waiting with a smiling welcome and a box of food and love care and the offer of an open home and that's a picture of the church for people to come out of warfare and be welcomed and cared for and loved And and we're the, all right, we're the imperfect church, but we're going to do our best. And we're going to say, you're all right now, we've got you. I wonder, can people in our area truly say, they've got me down at Elim, they really have got my hand, I know it, I feel it. The story of Sharon Grenham Thompson, whose son committed suicide at 16 years of age. She's a pastor, is Sharon. She's been a pastor for many years. You can imagine the pain. I mean, it happened to Rick Warren and his wife. Their son committed suicide, and they've written very movingly about the experience of being parents in that situation. And Sharon says this um, about the change in her life. I've had to comprehend that my life, our lives, changed forever that day, a change which was unwanted, unexpected, and undeserved, a change which has rocked my whole self, my sense of purpose, my vocation, and my faith. And maybe some of you are sitting here today and you've been through stuff and you say, it's really rocked my faith, it's rocked my calling. Well, she says, I've been ordained 24 years, but I've run the whole gamut in these last few months. Is God a delusion? Is God cruel? Has God abandoned me? Is God punishing me? Why, God? Where are you, God? Please be there, God, help me. I remember one day driving in the car, a good place for yelling at God, And shouting at him, it's all right for you, you got your son back. (laughs) And she says, it's all right, I'm still working through all that. But as the dust have settled, I've come to see moments of light and love in it all. She talks about the support she's received from the church. Complete strangers on social media checking in with me regularly with words of encouragement when the times have been the darkest. A friend driving hundreds of miles just to give me a hug. Family members stocking our fridge. School teachers doing everything they could to support the whole family. Ministry colleagues bringing food and a listening ear. Parishioners sending cards. It's made me think of those words from 1 John 4:16: "God is love, and those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them." And here she says, "I wonder if there's some wisdom here for our own witness." This is her quote for our own witness in a society that suffered so much through the pandemic and more. Not offering easy answers or promises of triumph, nor strategies or even jolly gimmicks, but instead sitting with the sorrow and the questions and offering simple, practical love. In the quiet act of presence, we perhaps proclaim most powerfully that God is with us. I thought that was brilliant and really helpful to me too through all that I've been through. I want to just share very quickly a few strategies that might be helpful to you as you seek to reach out to those who are going through stuff in your church. And can I just say, um, there's an article in this month's Direction magazine. If you haven't got it, I'm sure it's around somewhere. Surely they're selling them somewhere. This month's Direction magazine has got an article about Kintsugi movement. Are any of you involved in the Kintsugi movement at all? No? Okay. Appar- yeah, apparently some of our ch- 27 Elam churches are setting up these Kintsugi groups. Kintsugi is an ancient Japanese art whereby it happened when a, a Japanese, uh, well, it might have been a Chinese scholar, but it's a Japanese art, um, knocked a bowl and it fell to the ground and broke. And then he took the, the, the broken pieces and he mended it with a special amalgam of glue and gold dust. And so the repaired bowl had all this gold in it. And actually, Kintsugi repaired bowls and items are more valuable than the originals, right? And, and this is what we know as Christians, that there is something in brokenness That brings healing, Isaiah 28 and verse 28 says in the old version, bread corn is broken. In other words, you can't make bread before you crush corn. Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it die, it brings forth what? Much fruit. So when we're broken, good things can come. What kintsugi stands for is the idea that after you've been broken and fixed, you're stronger than before. (laughs) You're more valuable than before. And so look out for the Direction magazine. There's an article about Kinsugi and about the churches that are doing this because it could be quite a caring ministry. It sets up groups to help people who have been broken to find a path to healing. Okay, so look, I just want to recommend that today, although we're not running that yet where we are. So I want to talk about the place of, and the importance of support teams. When Diane was critically ill with um, my wife, with, with anxiety and depression crippling anxiety and depression and the church that I led didn't know I had a wife because she hardly ever went to church she was bound to the house in terrible fear all kinds of symptoms and um, we sought help everywhere we possibly could but it was ever so hard God spoke to the church and he spoke to me about a a vision of a honeycomb now honeycombs are not made to give you your toast in the guest house when you go to Elim Conference, honeycombs are created to nurture the young of the bees, right? And the bees go off and collect all this marvellous pollen, bring it back and create a little cell of sweetness. And the cell of sweetness nurtures the fragile and the young. And God gave us this vision of, of small cells of two or three that would gather with chronically ill people. Small cells. Diane had three ladies from the church. They committed to pray with her weekly, they committed to listen to her if she phoned them at any time. They committed to believe for her recovery, and they became close friends. And that group was like a honey cell of sweetness and life and light, and it brought Diane to a new place. And I have to tell you, she then went on and had ministry. We both had ministry from some wonderful ladies in Farnham in Surrey who ministered to pastors and doctors and their wives, and Diane was completely healed. I mean, we went on as missionaries after that, and she's become an absolute strength. Today she's full of joy. I'm afraid last week she was full of COVID, and that's why she wasn't here to tell you about it, but uh, she was going to come and share in this testimony uh, a testimony here today, but God brought her through but taught us an awful lot of lessons. You can imagine that over the years then as pastor and wife, we've had quite a bit to do with people who deal with mental health problems and, and issues and so on. So the vision of the Honeycomb as a support network has stayed with me. And I do feel if you've got chronic people in the church who are chronically ill, physically or mentally, consider the possibility of allocating a small team of two or three. We've seen the value of team, haven't we, during the pandemic. Um, Churches have set up work parties and specialist groups across church lines sometimes so that they could offer food banks and clothing banks. They could deliver stuff to people in in lockdowns, etc., it, the, the great thing about small teams is that it's mutually encouraging. Because dealing with chronic illness is desperately discouraging, and you know when you've got someone who's mentally ill for 13 years, or you've got a guy who's seriously, chronically, physically ill, uh, plus mental problems as well from it for 22 years, um, you know it can get a bit discouraging to your support team. So, so two or three is, is more doable. And um, I just want to share that vision with you and, and suggest it's something you might consider. It also overcomes the problem of the pastor or anybody else being seen as a kind of messiah who can fix all problems. Um, and Yeah, there's a guy with a messianic complex at the back. Hi, Matt. <laughs> no, I, he's the last one with a messianic complex. But I've struggled with that over the years as a pastor, can fix everything. And... Um, but small teams of two or three around the chronically ill, that's what they did for Diane, and it helped to see her through her anxiety and her depression. And then I, I want to move quickly on uh, as time has moved on, but um, we need to ditch the ready answers. Pentecostals are very quick to offer ready answers to people in in. Uh, chronic conditions the times I was told God's still on the throne Eric don't be afraid you know or we're praying for your brother which was great if they were terrific but there were so many cliches which stuck in my gut there was a song that went around God is good all the time it's true I couldn't sing it for ages I had to come to a place of faith in the spirit when I could start singing it again I couldn't sing that song when there's pain in the offering I still choke up at those words, Um, because there was pain in my offering, and I didn't want to give it, and I didn't want to have it. So you know, um, ditch the ready answers and learn to listen. What does that mean? Well, here's some, here's an honest approach for us. First of all, embrace mystery. Um, Isaiah 55 eight and nine says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We need to resist putting God in a box. Uh, As Pentecostals, we're very good at doing that. And we say, you know, God works in these ways, and that's it. And and we need to, to recognize that our God, you know, just Blows your mind. I mean, when you think of a thing like the Hayden uh, Collider, you know, there's something buried under the soil in Switzerland, which yoof, is doing all sorts of nuclear f- fusion things. I mean, that blows my mind. But, but God knew all that when He made the earth. You know, in Christ, all things consist and hold together. So if God could do that and it blows my mind, why do I think I can contain the Almighty in this 20, you know, this few pounds of gray matter called my brain? Why do I imagine that God, who made the universe and flung the stars in space, has to explain himself to me? So when a young pastor, full of energy, full of life and hope and vision, becomes sick, and we all pray and fast and ask God to heal him, and God takes him to heaven, and we're all left with the mystery, and I'm describing a situation that's happened twice in the last couple of years in Elim alone. What happens as we seek to cope with that disappointment? We've got to embrace mystery. We've got to say, God, I love you. You're bigger than all all that I understand. You're bigger than all I can comprehend. And I choose to trust you. We trust people with technology. I don't know how this 400-pound clicker works. I've got a 10-pound clicker in my bag just in case they didn't have one. Somebody told me this is a 400-pound clicker. I don't know how that works. But I trust it and I use it. How come I can trust a 400-pound clicker, but I can't trust God when I'm in pain? How come I can't trust the one who made heaven and earth when he takes his time answering my prayers because he's teaching me lessons or my wife lessons or the church I serve are learning lessons or our son is watching our faith through suffering? You know, I mean, come on. God's at work. And we need to embrace mystery. Why must our God be so manageable? I want to also say, Let's not despair. Don't give up on people. Don't give up on folk. I, I think it's so important to recognize hope is a powerful healing force. I've got a whole chapter on hope in my book, Through the Storms. Hope is a powerful healing force. And um, we mustn't give up. I, and I needed people to hope for me when my hope was gone. I thought, I'll never be free of this thing. When you're in pain, you can't sleep at night, you're on massive opiates, you've got all kinds of stuff going on in your body and mind, you don't know if you're going to be alive next week because of this condition. Hope is difficult to hold on to. You sometimes hold on to it by a thread. And then you want someone to come to you who will hope for you, who will just believe for you, who will keep believing. And after 22 years, that was hard going. But I want to be the person who keeps believing and keeps having hope for somebody else, even when they can't have hope for themselves. And We're so thrilled about a guy called Charlie, aren't we, Matt, who um, recently came to know Jesus. He spent probably 40 or 50 years since his wife became a Christian persecuting her and pressurizing her. If she didn't get back from the meeting in time to put his dinner on on a Sunday, he was mad with her. He really made it hard. She was really scared of him. And then during the pandemic, he started watching on an iPad. He started watching really cheesy, corny, um, uh, country western stuff. And gospel music from America, close harmony gospel music. And God just touched him, and he received Jesus. And uh, I went to visit Charlie, and I thought, I've got to take him through the four spiritual laws here. I've got to tell him four things God wants him to know and get him signed on a dotted line. And his wife said to me as I was going, she said, Eric, he saved He's really got saved. It's really happened for him after 40-odd years. Don't give up. Let's hang in with people Um, because God's at work. Don't judge ahead of time. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 says, you know, that there are are certain things which we will only understand in eternity. There is a season and a time to all God's purposes, as we know from Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 12. Um, Many situations are still unfinished, and we need to just recognize that we can't judge everything down here. We haven't got all the answers here. So 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. Um, God is eternal and can therefore afford to wait. Uh, discover the power of silence. Mother Teresa has said this. God is the friend of sinners. We need silence to be able to touch souls. And we're not so good at silence in Pentecostalism. But there's a really powerful place for silence. Uh, Somebody has said, pray all the time, sometimes use words. It was probably Francis of Assisi, wasn't it? If it's that good. Um, I've just been writing some notes for Scripture Union. I do their Bible study notes, a thing called Encounter with God, which is their Bible study notes like... um, Living bread or something, but it's for leaders. Encounter it's called, and so I was asked to do Job. I think they thought I'd had a Job-like experience. (laughs) So I've done Job now. I've done all 42 chapters, and uh, written written Bible reading notes for them, and really actually enjoyed it tremendously. Been greatly helped and blessed. But this comes from Job chapter two verses 11 to 13 about the friends. Before their donkey went wonky, they were actually quite good friends. All right. But then they got onto a theological bandwagon where, well, I won't go into it, but they basically started to believe bad people have bad things happen to them. Good, godly people always succeed and always triumph. Okay, they call it triumphalism. Well, it's another story, another seminar. Okay, so um, in Job 2, 11 to 13, it says this, Then they came and sat on the ground with Job for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Silence in the place of suffering. I want to go on to a prayer. This prayer was written by Eddie Askew, who worked for the leprosy mission. And um, I, I find it very moving. Lord, if I'm faced with someone's need today, help me to offer silence, not in the coldness of indifference, but in warm welcome to hear their version of events. Help me to control the urge to talk, to people their lives with my puppets, to jump to safe conclusions for which I have stock answers. Teach me with open mind and heart to hear their words and thoughts, to substitute the clichés I mistake for truth, with quiet love, spoken through eyes, not mouth, in hand, not sermon, in love that comes before advice. Love that comes before advice. Father, I thank you for those who are here because they care. I thank you for their churches. I thank you for their ministries. I pray blessing, Lord, upon them. You who have given, Lord, us by your Spirit, such a powerful resource to minister to others. We pray that you will help us to be conscious of the needs of the long-term ill, of those who are in pain, of those who are suffering loss and grief at these times of war and pandemic. And we pray, Lord, that as the body of Christ, we will reach out and minister as you have determined, so that even if people feel God is silent, they will hear him through the love that touches them from our hands. In Jesus' name, amen.